Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jenny Kaplan. Welcome to our first bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. The midterms are just around the corner. So on top of our regularly scheduled narrative-style episodes, we're going to bring you lightly edited interviews with experts, thought leaders, and people standing up to help women get elected. Today, for this first bonus app, I'm sharing my interview with Emily Kane, the executive director of Emily's List. So to start with something extremely easy, could you just tell me your name, your title, and what you do? My name is Emily Kane. I am the executive director of Emily's List, and my job is to make sure that Emily's List and the people who work here can do everything to elect the most pro-choice Democratic women as possible every election cycle across the country. I'd love to hear your personal story. Where are you from? How did you get into politics? How did you get here? I really never dreamed that this is where I would end up. At the same time, this is better than really any dream I probably could have come up with, aside from my original goal of being a Broadway star. Still could happen. I'm I'm not ruling it out yet. But for me, this journey really started about 15 years ago. I had finished my undergraduate work at the University of Maine in music education and voice, and Really what I discovered during my undergrad was that I was very interested, based on my own experience and my experience of my friends and classmates, in the challenges of attending college. Student debt, affordability, access, quality education, getting a job afterward in a place you wanted to live like Maine. And that led me to pursue a master's degree in higher education and public policy from Harvard University the Graduate School of Education, and I was finishing up, it was in the middle of that year that I really discovered public policy as something I was, I really needed to be involved in. Because what I kept finding was all these issues I cared about, particularly things like student debt, college affordability and access, kept coming back to state legislatures or the Congress making decisions that had radical ripple effects that really hurt a lot of working families. And basically a lot of people in elected office voting on things I cared about in higher education and really doing a bad job of it in a lot of cases. And so May of 2004, I reached out to my state senator at the time, an amazing woman named Mary Cathcart, who is still a mentor of mine today. We were at a Kentucky Derby party, if you can believe that. I was wearing a hat with fruit on it. And I approached Mary and said, you Mary, I'm very passionate about public policy. I'm finishing my master's degree in a few weeks. I would really like to work at the State House or in the Department of Education. Could I send you my resume to pass along and help me find a job there in Maine? Mary and her husband, Jim Dearman, were there, and, and Jim said, Emily, have you ever thought about running for office? I 
was sort of taken aback by the question and said, no, maybe someday, who knows, you know, I'm not going to rule things out. But I was really just focused on trying to get Mary to agree to pass my resume around. And Jim said, Mary, I think we found our candidate. And I said, for what? <laughs> I And they told me that the state house seat in my area would be opening up that they had just found out and they needed to recruit a candidate. I talked with my then fiance at the time. I went home that day and he said, you know, you're built for this. I think you should totally run. And I then did the most stereotypical thing that I could, that I now know is very stereotypical of a woman who's asked to run for office. I wrote an email to Senator Cathcart and said, Mary, I'm sure you're talking to a lot of qualified people about this opportunity. Please let me know how I can help. I mean, today, Emily Kane would be like, just say yes, just do it. But at the time, I didn't know anything about politics or campaigning. Uh, I just knew I wanted to make a difference in public policy. To her credit, Mary wrote me back and said, Emily, I wasn't joking. We weren't joking. Please say yes. And that was end of May 2004. June 10th, I finished my master's degree. June 11th, I was back in Maine figuring out next steps. July 1st, started a job at the University of Maine. July 6th, I became a candidate for office. August 15th, I got married. I took six days off from the campaign to have my wedding. <laughs> and I got elected November 2nd that year. And I went to the state house for the first time in my entire life as an incoming elected official. I had to map quest the directions and print them off in 2004. And so here I am 14 years later, and this fall is actually the first time since then that I am not on the ballot this November. I went on to serve 10 years in the state legislature, in the House and in the Senate. I was the appropriations chair, the minority leader, the youngest woman ever to do both of those things, and served in the House and the Senate. I ran for Congress, almost won, ran again, almost won again. And just over a year ago, I basically won the job lottery. And now I get to help lead this incredible organization to help elect more women with stories and passions like mine and, and more all across the country. Wow. As someone who was a candidate so many times and from such a young age too, what are some of the things that you look back on and you think, oh, wow, this is really part of the systemic thing that we're, we're seeing either about women having challenges while running or the, the attitude that is often shared by women who think about running? So for me, it comes in a lot of different forms. The fact that I was 24 years old and a woman, I meant that you know, my lens on the different obstacles or stereotypes that come with that are both based on my gender and also my age. During my entire 10 years in the legislature, there was not a session that went by where somebody wouldn't ask me whether or not I had finals coming up for my classes or was I going to graduate from college soon. Even when I was chair of the budget committee for the state of Maine, I had people who, when I would be introduced, would say, oh, so you work for the committee. I was like, no, I... I actually chair the committee. That gavel is, it's my gavel. <laughs> this is my committee room and this is my committee. And and then uh, certainly dealt with people asking me which office I worked in or who I was interning for. So age, I, I think I dealt with that pretty often. And I, I will say what I found and learned, when, particularly when it came to ageism, is really what I would call it, was that people were generally not malicious. People were not trying to demean me in my role. They just honestly had never met a 24-year-old or a 26-year-old doing those kinds of things before. And I always looked at it as a teaching moment, as an opportunity to change their paradigm on what an elected official looks like. 
And I always got a quick apology and a sheepish grin and just complete embarrassment on the other side. And I always felt like in those moments, I was preventing another future young elected official from hopefully a similar moment because I changed that person's perspective. But then on, on on the gender front, when you knock on doors and you're a woman, particularly a young woman, they'll ask you, do you have a husband? And that carries with it its own set of assumptions about who a person might be married to, right, or not. Does your husband know what you're doing? Does your husband support you? What does your husband think about what you do? Do you have any children? Are you going to have children? When will you have children? When will you have time to have children and do this? I, I now sit in this position and I, have, I, give, I give a pretty good pep talk, I think, to some of our candidates across the country who are accomplished women running for Congress, showing up at community forums, next to male counterparts who also have children who are getting questions like, well, who will take care of your children if you get elected to Congress? And they're not asking the guys those questions, right? And how to handle that with strength um, and a little bit of grace in those moments. There are always examples of people saying inappropriate things about the way you look, about the way you act. I'll never forget there was one bill that I had about electing younger people to the state legislature and changing the age of eligibility and people getting up and saying, well, these young people, they, they're just going to cry all the time, you know, when things get hard. And I'm looking around at this group of people thinking, that is just outrageous and rude. When I got elected, there were about a quarter of the state legislature were women, and only five of us, men and women, were under the age of 35 in the state legislature in Maine. Today, it's a lot different. And I think for me, I'm so grateful for the experience that I had, the opportunity to lead, the opportunity to serve my community. It's second to none, and my goal is, is always to help change the stereotypes Uh, and assumptions that are made about young people and about women so that hopefully next time somebody won't have to put up with those kinds of questions along the way. Totally. I'd love to hear more about Emily's List. Can you give me just sort of the basic, the founding story and and what it the organization's mission is? Well, it's, it's fun. So I'm Emily from Emily's List now, right? But I am not the Emily because there isn't a the Emily. Emily actually is an acronym. A lot of people don't know that, but Emily stands for Early Money is like yeast. It makes the dough rise. Emily's List was founded in 1985 by a group of women who really were sick and tired of the fact that it was the mid-1980s and a Democratic woman had never been elected to the U.S. Senate in her own right. Not one in the mid-1980s. And this group of women got together and what they really found from working with candidates, they were a bunch of women in the D.C. area for the most part, well-connected, smart, engaged, diverse group of women who said, hey, you know, we need to make a change. What do we do about it? Well, the one way for a candidate to get taken seriously then, and quite frankly, now still, is to show they can raise money. What they found then is that women who were amazing and ready to run, the sort of establishment, old boys network, in at the time in the Democratic Party and still today in the Republican Party too, they were basically written off before they started. Women can't raise money. You don't have that kind of network. There had been some specific cases in a Senate race, for example, in Missouri, a woman named Harriet Woods ran and almost won. And really, they never took her seriously because they thought she couldn't raise money. And then she almost won and no one had helped her. And so in 1986, uh, Emily's List got behind Barbara Mikulski for the United States Senate. And that first group of women basically got out their Rolodexes, wrote letters to their friends and asked them to give money in small dollars, amounts, whatever you can give to, to help Barbara win. 
1986, Barbara Mikulski was elected as the first pro-choice Democratic woman or Democratic woman at all elected to the Senate in her own right. And Emily's List was off and running. From the very beginning, to be eligible to earn our endorsement, you have to be a pro-choice Democratic woman. We, in the last 33 years, have elected 12 governors, 23 United States senators, 116 women to the U.S. House, and more than 800 state legislators. It's so important to have women sitting at these tables of power across our country. And Emily's List has played a significant role in changing the face of who sits at those tables. About 40% of the women we've elected have been women of color. And we continue to diversify our candidates, diversify the pipeline, pipeline of women ready to run. Today, we are the largest we've ever been with the largest number of endorsements we've ever made in an election cycle as we head into these midterms, midterm elections. We are working at an unprecedented pace to not only elect, but also train the next generation to help win these elections. You know, in the last 33 years, we've spent most of our time recruiting women to run for office, literally going to their houses and sometimes begging them to run. <laughs> and in 2016, we had the highest number of women ever at that time actually reach out to us to say they wanted to make a plan to run for office. It was 920 women who reached out to us and we thought, wow, this is a big moment with Hillary Clinton on the ticket for president. Almost a thousand women are reaching out to us to say they might want to run for office. This is huge. And then Donald Trump got elected and Hillary Clinton lost and the Republican Congress took over and Republicans took over state houses around the country and started rolling back laws, attacking women and families, going after Planned Parenthood, and within one month of that election, more than a thousand women had reached out to us to say they wanted to run for office. And as of today, that number is now more than 40,000 strong, representing women in all 50 states, women who are saying they want to make a plan to run for office. So 2018 is not just another year of the woman. This is not a wave of women running for office. This is a sea change moment for women in politics, and Emily's List is at the center of leading that to make sure it is lasting for generations to come. Wow, 40,000 women have reached out. <laughs> 40,000. Yeah, I mean, so 40,000 has ripple effects, right? We've, we now have, you know, we're, we have about 120 staff. When I started last summer, we had about 80. <laughs> um, we have had to knock down a wall in our Washington office to accommodate seats and offices for people who work here. We are, we have people working all across the country, seven days a week, recruiting, helping women. You know, Emily's List gets very involved in primaries because we believe that's where the difference is made. You can't win a general election if you don't win the primary first. And so we have had about an 80% success rate in our primaries this year for Senate, Governor, and Congress, and also state and local. And we're not stopping. Our plan and goal is to flip the U.S. House this fall with 23 pro-choice Democratic women, and then, or more, and hopefully a bunch of good men to, to go along with them. I'm, I'm just still catching up from that 40,000 number. 40,000 is a lot. I mean, and I'll tell you, it started, you know, with, we had on our website, it was sort of four or five clicks in, there was actually a page that was for signing up, because you might want to run for office to attend a training near you. And that was where that initial thousand plus came in. Well, once we realized what was happening, we moved that button to the front of our website, <laughs> put it out on our social media, and they just kept coming. These women are diverse. They are more than half of them are under the age of 45. 
So that's why we know this is a generational shift as well, an opportunity. They want to make a plan to run. They, they see that this is an opportunity that cannot be missed. And we have expanded our operations. We have expanded our training. We've already trained more than 4,000 women in the last 18 months, really. 20 months, I guess, since we got into 2017. This doesn't operate in, uh, in isolation, right? We had Donald Trump win. We had Hillary Clinton lose. We had bad things happen in the Congress. Bad things happen in state houses. The Women's March, right? We have Me Too and Time's Up. We have Parkland dealing with hurricanes. We're dealing with Kavanaugh. We're dealing with daily tweets from the president that are in large part horrible for women and families. You know, it is a horrible period. Thankfully, women of America are saying, put me in, let me at it. Let me help you with that problem. Let's get it done. And one of the best ways they can do that is run for office and we're ready to help. So you just spoke to this a bit um, in terms of like the training, but how, how does Emily's List support candidates? So Emily's List supports candidates in a lot of ways and at all stages of the process. When we engage with women, we typically are with them for their career. So we, we work with women in a number of ways. The most basic level, any woman can sign up to be on our Run to Win list. And that really gets you, we have an online training center so that if you can't attend one of our trainings in person and you live in maybe a rural place or you just don't know where to get started, people can go and sign up and, and go through our more than 30 years of content for training to help figure out where to run, what to do, how to get started. We then also do in-person trainings, and these trainings happen in states all across the country in partnership sometimes with unions or with conferences so that we can we train these women in person in a really a four-hour boot camp style training. We help women by giving them a place to support other women. We have uh, donors and we have people who have signed up and it, you know, as part of that 40,000, We've also had more than 8,000 who've signed up to say they want to help a pro-choice Democratic woman run for office. But then when it's time for a woman to run, or she thinks she's thinking about it, we're there to help her put together her team, to help her find staff. We're there to help her figure out how to talk to her family about it and her friends. How to, and true to our roots, we are there to help her put together that initial fundraising push. How to make that, how to do call time. How to get your list together how to Rolodex your friends and family, how to expand that list, how to earn endorsements. You know, I recently was with one of our congressional candidates, a couple of them, Abby Finkenauer from Iowa and Lauren Underwood from Illinois. And both of them told stories about how when other national organizations or establishment groups would sort of write them off because they're young women, they're millennial women, Emily's List could get behind the doors that they couldn't get behind and open them up for them. We are full service. We, you know, we, we do everything from take calls in the middle of the night when a candidate needs a pep talk to making sure we work with her staff and her team so that they are ready to go, help with getting endorsements. We are on the ground with them for everything from debate prep to their TV ads. And then we also uh, have an independent expenditure arm here at Emily's List that every election cycle is investing millions of dollars in working to help make sure our women are the winners on election night. So how does the organization decide candidates to support? You know, especially when you think about that fundraising arm, how do you pick which candidates to endorse? So Emily's List endorsement, um, you are eligible for an Emily's List endorsement if you are a pro-choice Democratic woman. So that doesn't necessarily mean you will definitely get our endorsement. You know, we do a lot of research and vetting on our candidates to make sure we feel confident putting our our name on their race because we want to make sure that the Emily's List endorsement 
means something and that they're running the kind of campaign that we feel comfortable recommending to our donors, which is important, right? Because if we're going to ask our more than 5 million members across the country to consider supporting a candidate, we want to make sure our candidate is in a position to use that support effectively and in a position that will help them be successful. So that's, I mean, that's really what it takes. So we endorse in state and local and federal races, and we take every race on its own merits because every race is different and every candidate is different and the dynamics in every race are are different. We do endorse in primaries. Sometimes there are multiple pro-choice Democratic women in a primary and we don't endorse. Sometimes there are multiple pro-choice Democratic women in a primary and we do endorse. Well, and I will say on a personal level, I was an Emily's List candidate. And so I can attest to the power of more than 30 years of experience working to elect women and engage women voters. That perspective at the table of a campaign is so valuable. It's something that brings best practice from other races and and other election cycles to our candidates and their campaigns. It's something that brings camaraderie and a sisterhood, really, among Emily's List candidates and with the staff. These are true relationships. It is not transactional. You know, we're not coming in and saying, you know, do X, Y, and Z, and then maybe we'll take a look at you. If If we're coming in, we're coming in, we're gonna be sitting next to you. Um, and I can I can attest to that personally. I'd love to talk a little bit more about having such a defined ideological framework. It's something that we've been talking about a lot. Sure. So for us, if you're going to be pro-woman, being pro-choice is part of that. Because the decision, not only trusting a woman to make her own health care decisions, but also the decision of when, if, how, whether to have a child is really one of the most important economic decisions a woman will make in her life. So for us, being pro-woman means being pro-choice. And for Emily's List from the very beginning, we decided to stick with that lane of pro-choice Democratic women because we believe that is an indicator of how you view women in the workplace, women in society, women in leadership, women in community, if you can trust women to make their own healthcare decisions. Especially right now, where we are in a place where we see we see it playing out on the airwaves with the Supreme Court hearings. We see it being played out in media and how women candidates are covered on both sides of the political aisle, still with their tone of voice or their dress, right? Or was she warm or not? These sort of gendered, gendered commentary that go with being around women. I think there is absolutely a need for there to be coverage of the experience of women running for office in America on all sides of the political aisle. But for me and for Emily's List, being pro-women, being pro-choice goes hand in hand with that. That's because of how you view women's ability to make those, those decisions and participate in our communities and our economy. There's a lot of stories to be told. Emily's List is a success story. There's no question about that. We certainly wish there was a GOP equivalent of us because we often feel like we are responsible for the total number of women being elected to Congress, for example, this fall, when there absolutely should be the same pressure on the other side. And there's just not. It doesn't, it's not reflected in their leadership. It's not reflected in their recruits. I mean, if you just look at this election cycle, half of the candidates running on the Democratic ticket for the U.S. House this fall are women. On the Republican side, it is 18.1%. That is not good enough to make change. Not when women make up half the population, when women are becoming more and more of the face of businesses, the face of communities, and certainly for centuries have been the face of our families. And I think 
this is a really important moment where everybody's got to step up as we think about telling the story of American women. Why do you think it is that the parties differ so significantly when it comes to, you know, approaching women and women candidates? Well, and I will say on a personal note, you know, I'm I'm from Maine and Maine has an extraordinary record of Republican women, right? We had the very first woman, period, elected in her own right, uh, was Republican Margaret Chase Smith from Maine. We've had Olympia Snow and we have Susan Collins currently. But that was a different time, right? When particularly Olympia and Susan were first elected, the Republican Party had not gone through its Tea Party years and which it's still coming out of as now we have the Trump era in the Republican Party. And by default, you know, those were two, Olympia and Susan, both women who in elected office largely voted pro-choice and were considered themselves pro-choice. And then at the same time, their party moving in a re- reverse direction, entrenching themselves with an anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-birth control, anti-equal pay, anti-women and families agenda. It's no wonder that women don't feel like they are welcome to step up and lead on the other side. I, I've never been a Republican, so I don't know. <laughs> no Republican has ever recruited me to run for office, but I know from my experience in elected office that there are Republican women who want to run and who should run for office. I served in the legislature with many of them and worked across the aisle with them on really important legislation from budgets to economic development plans to domestic violence prevention to healthcare access to education. I think it's actually doing a disservice to our country that the Republican Party has not been able to engage women in a leadership way. It's, it's not good for anyone. What are the challenges that women candidates face that may be different than what their male counterparts face? What are the areas of support that are necessary in order to push that forward? You know, the challenges that women face, they range based on age, gender, race, geography. (laughs) But in large part, it is just not seen as the norm, right, for a woman to run for office. And therefore, there's an adjustment that unless it's happened before where you live and it was successful, people feel like maybe that's not the best and highest purpose for their skills. You get better legislation that is more comprehensive that better supports women and families across our country when you have women at those at those decision-making tables. So the outcomes bear out that this is a good idea. Any obstacles that are in place are much more embedded in society's stereotypical and historic view of women in their traditional roles, which is something that we still deal with all the time. And we see it in the way the media often struggles to cover women. The fact that all women are not the same and having one woman at a table of power actually is not good enough because one woman actually does not carry all of the stories for all women in all places at all times, despite, you know, sometimes what people will say. When we think about the obstacles women face, where Emily's List has come in and where we still play really a huge and impactful role today is really some of that basic knowledge of how to run a campaign, how to run a campaign that's reflective of who you are and your values and your story, how to make sure you're running that campaign successfully with the financial resources that you need and the partners that you need to to get it done. The secret to running a good campaign is actually just being disciplined, raising money, having a good message, connecting with voters, right? It's not some special magic potion. It's these basics. But Emily's List has been able to, over the last 30 years, learn about not only helping women candidates who never ever saw themselves as becoming elected officials get started, but also communicating with the women voters 
who are out there to support them. I think the barriers are in some ways aspirational because we don't have a lot of women in government. We're just, just under 20% of Congress, not even 25% of state legislators across the country. And that's why this year and the work we're doing is so important because this sea change year where, I mean, in Nevada, it's possible that half of the legislature would be women this year. That's unprecedented. That's never happened before. That overnight changes who's on TV, who's quoted in the press, who you see when you open up the news in your social media. Those are, it's an aspirational moment that changes for the next generation when you think of little kids looking at the news. So the, the barriers are everything from aspirations to some of the old boys network that are set up inside political parties where it's really about, you know, just changing that paradigm. The best way to change it is to elect women, right? I mean, it, it sounds a little trite, I guess, but the, it's the truth. If the more women we elect, the more we inherently break down those structural barriers by just changing who sits there. What are some of the inspirational, pivotal things that have happened that have allowed this historic election to really take place where a record number of women are running? For a little historical context, we we don't have to go too far back, but we can go to 1992, which was known as the year of the woman, where a record number of women were elected to the U.S. House and to the Senate, changing really the face of of the Congress for, for a generation or two. And that was really centered around the Supreme Court hearings of Clarence Thomas and the testimony of Anita Hill. And that Anita Hill moment, driving women to the polls, driving women to run for office, driving women to support other women, when this very powerful, credible, smart, strong woman goes before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, which is made up of all white men, and that visual of that moment was transformative and really caused a lot of women to channel that frustration, that anger, that not seeing yourself represented or supported in your government into running for office. This is like that on steroids because this isn't just one moment, right? This doesn't just start with Donald Trump getting elected. It's also Hillary Clinton losing, a woman who by any measure was ready to lead our nation. And then to see an all-male panel on healthcare, right? An all-white male panel on healthcare play out on television in the Congress. And we see state legislatures immediately where Republicans had taken control, seeking to defund Planned Parenthood, to take away access to safe and legal abortion, to go after programs that help women and children, that support women in the economy time and time again. And, And on the heels of that, we do have the Women's March, where hundreds of thousands of women marched in D.C. and all over the country in solidarity with one another. And then we saw hurricanes happen and we saw the terrible, pathetic response in large part of the federal government. Um, We see the terrible language, racist language happening around immigration. We have Parkland, you know, we have Me Too, we have Time's Up. And at every single turn, at Emily's List, we saw more women signing up to run for office. The good news is that in 2017 and 2018, When women got frustrated, they didn't just march. They're not just calling their senators. They're not just writing letters and sending emails and organizing their friends and their communities. They're doing all of that and raising their hand to run for office. We've been some positive things along the way that have galvanized women. Certainly the Virginia elections in 2017, where we saw a record number of diverse women, you know, elected to the Virginia Assembly. It's a positive story and more women sign up. We see Doug Jones win the Alabama Senate election, more women sign up. What we've seen at Emily's List is that in a time like this, there isn't just one thing 
that is causing these women to mobilize. It's all of these things. It's this storm of events, of issues, of frustrations, of things that make you mad, things you want to do better and see done better in your community. I mean, Emily's List is is ready to help lead um, and help as many of these women as we can win in November, and then next November, and then November after that, and the one after that, and many more to come. One of the things I hear the most is people will say, my friends and family will say, gosh, it must be really hard to work in Washington, D.C. right now. And I say, no. I jump out of bed every day and basically run to work because I'm so excited about the women who are running. They are the antidote for what is ailing us right now. And it, it is how we will heal as a nation. It is how we will come together. It is how we will make things better. I'm very proud to be doing this work. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, or if you have suggestions for how we can improve, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram at WMN.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. We'll be back on Thursday with a regular episode featuring another inspiring candidate. Talk to you then.